Good afternoon, everyone. Today, I, I hope none of you are expecting a really exciting hidden cannon that you can use to transform the church and the world. Not going to happen today. But I do promise that when you understand what the law of the church is about the rights of all of the faithful as well as the laity, you'll understand that exercising those rights really does make a difference. So, that disclaimer out of the way. Today, um, I'm going to divide what I have to say into three parts. First, a few introductory comments which situate the notion of rights in the church in the proper context. Second, I'll discuss the rights and the obligations, because they go hand in hand, of all the Christian faithful first, and then those specific to the laity after that. And when I discuss those canons, I will interweave examples of where those rights might be exercised in other places in the uh, law of the church. And Okay, is that better? And finally, I'm going to give you my own opinion, disclaimer, my own opinion, about how the current situation of uh, the non-reporting or transfer of priests uh, arose in the church and remedies that we can take even within the limitations of our rights to address that. So first, a few introductory comments. We're talking today about the rights and duties contained in the church's code of canon law. Everybody may applaud now. Okay. There are other sources, for example, the documents of the Second Vatican Council and papal encyclicals, which address human and ecclesial rights, but canon law draws from these documents and addresses the way the church implements the concepts contained in the encyclicals and uh, documents of the council in more concrete ways. Now, this is not to say that the law is crystal clear. It's not. But it reflects the understanding of the church hierarchy about the rights, responsibilities, and relationships in the external form that is the public way the church operates and presents a structure for discussion. It's always important to make sure everyone is using the same vocabulary when they have conversations, right? When you go to a, a lawyer or a doctor, you want to make sure that both of you understand what each other is saying. So the church's legal system is based on a model of French administrative law and not English common law. Uh, what, what does that mean? First of all, church law is meant to be applied. All exceptions and situations are assumed to have been included in the law when it is promulgated by the legislator, who would be either the pope or a diocesan bishop for particular law, and the law is then applied in individual cases. So a decision in one place for a particular instance 
even decisions of higher courts guide rather than bind decisions on other instances. Now, there is a danger in ignoring the legal, the decisions of higher, of higher tribunals in case something is appealed. You want to know what the reasoning is of the judges on the higher uh, level courts. But it doesn't bind you. In fact, um, a differing opinion of a first instance tribunal might even inform higher tribunals and help them see a particular instance in a way that they haven't seen before. So um, this, there can be much variation in the application of canon law to particular cases because the law is riddled with statements such as um, a bishop should grant this request for a just reason or you should impose this penalty for a grave cause. Well, what's just for some or grave for someone else may differ. And so the law may look like it's being applied um, kind of without much thought behind it, when actually we'd rarely know this because most decisions of church courts are private decisions. That is, they're issued to the person, the reasoning behind them may be known only to the person for whom a particular decision applies. So if a man who was a priest wishes to leave the priesthood and be laicized, he applies and he is given a response, and the reasons for that response positive or negative, are contained therein. So you only see the public effects of that. Father John, who was a priest, is now John Smith and not. So you knew that something happened, but not why or how it came about. Um, and canon law is then interpreted. So someone looks at a situation, they look at the law, and they ask, how does this law apply to this case? So it's interpreted and the law of the civil realm. Now, uh, how many attorneys do we have here? Okay, we have a few. This terminology might drive you crazy. When I talk about civil law, I don't mean civil law versus criminal law. I mean law that's been established by civil authorities and um, as opposed to law established by um, church authorities. So no hand raising, you know, the first time I use that. Um, in, when I was studying canon law and we took classes with those studying civil law, they had a name for themselves. They called themselves real lawyers, as opposed to the rest of us. Okay, now in church law, you see a very tight relationship between uh, rights and duties. Sometimes a right implicitly gives rise to an obligation for someone else, and in many matters involving the laity and their rights, it might be more appropriate to say not um, what are the rights in this matter, but what are the laity entitled to because of obligations put on someone else. And we'll talk about this a little later, most specifically in light of the obligations of the pastor. So 
we look at rights in several categories. The first are basic human rights, which are typically not included in canon law because it is assumed that civil society, all of us together, regardless of religion, will be taking care of the basic human rights of others. What might those be in the mind of the church? So Gaudium and Spes, or the uh, Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, says this. There must be made available to all everything necessary for leading a truly human life, such as food, clothing and shelter, the right to choose a state of life and to found a family, the right to education, to work, to a good reputation, to respect, to appropriate information, to act in accord with the right norm of conscience, to the protection of privacy, and to rightful freedom, even in religious matters. So the church assumes that our civil society will take care of those. If they don't, we are not off the hook. We still are responsible as Catholics for orienting the apostolic works of the church toward the basic human rights of all Christian of all peoples. The second class of rights, so we have basic human rights. Then we have ecclesial rights that arise from the fact that we're baptized. Baptism, which we'll discuss in a minute, makes us members of the church, and as members of the church, we have certain rights. Then ecclesiastical rights are those which are based on church law and are attached to particular offices or functions in the church. So, for example, to be, I'm an advocate at the tribunal. Now, in law, that doesn't mean a helpful person. It means someone who is capable of writing briefs, has a particular background in canon law, and has certain rights to see information that the parties may not at different points in time. Um, our pastor has many rights outweighed by many responsibilities and duties accrued to the office of pastor. Uh, communal rights belong to those persons who are members of organizations uh, recognized by the church, for example, associations or religious communities. Um, and we'll talk about associations of the faithful in a minute. So as I mentioned earlier, canon law draws from the theological understanding of church teachings and does not drive them. So thinking if we only changed that law, we could make things better, is um, futile if there's an underlying principle of theology that undergirds that. So we do often change um, practices of discipline. For example, it's still in universal law to abstain from meat on every Friday of the year. But the law gave bishops' conferences the um, opportunity to amend that for their entire territory. They did so in the United States because what was meant to be a penitential discipline meant that people were eating salmon and lobster and crab on Fridays, which wasn't really in keeping uh, with the intent of the law.
So prior to Prior to the Second Vatican Council, the operative model of the church was that of a perfect society, that is, a society possessing all the means necessary to achieve its end. The laws of the church viewed power and authority paternalistically as the means by which clerics of varying grades directed subordinate clerics and laity on the way of salvation. Vatican II did not reject the idea of the church as a visible society staffed by humans, which needs to have some regulation attached to it, but introduced other models with which to understand the church. The most important of these in the church's legal system is that of communio, which refers to the relationship of each baptized person to Christ and to other baptized persons, and to the necessary participation of all the baptized in the mission of the church. A common question for those who were in RCIA when I was working at the parish was, why do we have to go to confession? Well, it's because when somebody commits a sin, they not, it's not only an offense before God, but it's also an offense to the body of the church and limits the, body of the, the ability of the body of the church to achieve its goals, especially if it's something that was conducted in public, lying, cheating, even worse types of, uh, types of sins. People see that and believe something about the church. So you, you have to make sure that you're always... Um, in right standing, not only with God, but as baptized Catholics with the church as well. So let's get on to some of the canon law that talks about the rights and responsibilities of the laity. All of these canons are based uh, and set the context of the exercise of rights in the church on baptism. So we see, and I'll be quoting when I think it's important, quote, the entire text of a canon. So we see in, in the law that by baptism, one is incorporated into the Church of Christ and is cons constituted a person in it with the duties and rights which are proper to Christians in keeping with their condition, insofar as they are in ecclesiastical communion and unless a legitimately issued sanction stands in the way. Well, what does that mean, right? Well, all the baptized, whether you're baptized in a Lutheran church, a Methodist church, an evangelical church, anyone baptized with the Trinitarian formula is a member of the body of Christ and a Christian. This body of law refers only to those who are in full communion with the Catholic Church, those who are, agree on matters of faith, those churches in whom the sacraments are valid, and who accept the governance of the Holy Father. So um, the Orthodox, for example, agree in sacraments and faith, but do not accept the Holy father as the supreme leader of the church. So they are um, in communion with us, but not in full communion. This law applies to people 
basically us, to Catholics, baptized or received into the church. So the Christian faithful, it goes on in particular, the Christian faithful are those who, inasmuch as they have been incorporated in Christ through baptism, have been constituted as the people of God, for this reason made shares in their own way in Christ's priestly, prophetic, and royal function, they are called to exercise the mission which God has entrusted to the church to fulfill in the world in accord with the condition proper to each. So in their own way, what is your calling? What are your gifts? And um, <coughs> in this world doesn't mean a distinction between what happens in this church and what happens on Kensdale uh, Drive. It means uh, between this world in the world we live in, and the world thereafter. So, in other words, because it all relates to the mission of the church, any ecclesial activity, including the, obligation, the exercise of obligations and rights, must be viewed in terms of the degree to which it fosters the salvific purpose and mission of the church, to bring all to Christ, to bring all to God, and to um, establish the kingdom of God on earth. The church is not the kingdom of God. It's our job to establish that kingdom of justice and freedom and peace. And it refers to everyone. The church does not teach that everyone has to be Catholic. The church teaches what Catholics have to do to bring about that, that uh, mission. The church seeds a certain place in salvation to the Jewish people, and it recognizes that some truth lives in other Christian churches, but subsists in totality in the Catholic Church. So those baptized, as I said, are fully in communion with the Catholic Church on this earth, who are joined with Christ in its visible structure by the bonds of profession of faith, the sacraments, and ecclesiastical governance. Now, the law goes on to make distinctions. By divine institution, there are among the Christian faithful in the church sacred ministers, who in law are also called clerics. The other members of the Christian faithful are called laypersons. Why does it do this here? Well, primarily, because the structure of this book of canon law looks at the rights and obligations first of all the Christian faithful, then the laity, then clergy, and finally those who live in consecrated life, who can be either lay or clerics, and just divides it in such a way that it wants to make a distinction. It's not raising any issues of who's first and who's last. We heard about that in the gospel today. So we're now going to talk about the obligations and rights of all the Christian faithful. From their rebirth in Christ, and I'm quoting a canon here, there exists among all the Christian faithful a true equality regarding dignity and action by which they all cooperate in the building up of the body of Christ according to each one's condition and function. So the, the ability to 
be obliged to do something or to have a right to do something is conditioned by um, your age, where you live, your mental capacity, um, what your vocation is, what your office is, you, what office you might hold in the church. And this um, restriction or nuancing of rights occurs not only in uh, the church, but also in civil society. Last year at Christmas, we gave our grandchildren this little car they could build with a crash dummy in it so that they could learn how what was necessary to save lives. Well, sometime during brunch, we heard them in the other room saying things like, yes, we killed that one. So, you know, you have to regulate to whom you give licenses to drive and to whom you give licenses to make decisions in the church. So the Christian faithful then, even in their own manner of acting, meaning even when we're at the office downtown, are always obliged to maintain communion with the church. You can't go out on your own. You can't decide that uh, you don't like what the church teaches, so you're going to establish your own church, or you're going to tell people something, the church teaches something when it doesn't. You can't do that. You're obliged to maintain communion. And with great diligence, they are to fulfill the duties which they owe to the universal church and the particular church to which they belong according to the precepts of law. That applies to you and me and Father Bill and Father Stephen and the Cardinal and the Pope. We're all Christian faithful, so we're all bound by this set of, of, of canons. So all the Christian faithful, then, have the duty and right to work so that the divine message of salvation more and more reaches all people in every age and in every land. So that's missionary work, or it might be going to the soup kitchen down the street, because what is this message of salvation that God, our creator, loves us all and wants to bring us together into his life? So we have an obligation and a right to live lives in a way that uh, shows that to other people. Um, all the Christian faithful must direct their efforts to lead a holy life and to promote the growth of the church and its sanctification according to their own condition. Remember that. We'll talk about that at the end again. So, um, conscious of their own responsibility, the Christian faithful are bound to follow with Christian obedience those things which sacred pastors, inasmuch as they represent Christ, declare as teachers of the faith or establish as rulers of the church. So there's a hierarchy of truths that um, we have in the church. The Pope speaks with great authority, councils speak with authority, the fact that the Pope wakes up one morning and says, I'd really like 
my bedroom, I think all bedrooms should be painted blue, does not oblige um, all the priests to paint their rooms blue. There are hierarchies of teachings. And as we go to less authoritative teachings, the, um, the degree to which it is incumbent on us to learn and to think about those teachings increases. So we have a responsibility to understand what the church teaches, and if we tend not to agree or understand, to do some work to find out what it's saying. Um, these next two sections are among my favorites. The Christian faithful are free to make known to the pastors of the church their needs, especially spiritual ones, and their desires. Do you ever get emails, Father Bill? Occasionally, right. Um, according to the knowledge, competence, and prestige which they possess. Now, by prestige, we mean someone who may be a professor at a university, not uh, Chloe Kardashian, who speaks before Congress on a matter that's of interest to her. But according to the knowledge, competence, and prestige which they possess, they, all the Christian faithful, have the right and even at times the duty to manifest to the sacred pastors their opinion on matters which pertain to the good of the church and to make their opinion known to the rest of the Christian faithful uh, without prejudice to the integrity of faith and morals, with reverence toward their pastors and attentive to the common advantage and dignity of persons. What does that mean in, in real language? It means it's incumbent on us when we have opinions to express to understand what we're talking about. Because the degree to which we understand what we are talking about has a direct impact on the degree to which those to whom we speak listen to what we have to say. So there's a difference between someone coming in and saying, I hate that song, they shouldn't be singing it, right? He probably hears that from people. And between someone coming in and expressing a concern about something that might have been implied in a homily or something that uh, it might have been taught in a catechetical lecture because it seemed a little off of what the church was teaching. There's a difference in that. The reception of that is taken more seriously and maybe looked into a little differently than someone who just has an opinion. I have lots of opinions. My husband hears most of them. But I keep them to myself if I don't have any grounding in when I should talk about something. So this is an important right and even an obligation to express what you have to say to the pastor. At the end, we'll come back to that as well. So the faithful have the right to receive assistance from the sacred pastors out of the spiritual goods of the church, especially the word of God and the sacraments. So the word of God includes preaching and catechesis. And the law says in other areas, a homily must be given at all masses and Sundays and holy days of obligation, which are celebrated with the congregation, and it cannot be omitted except for a grave cause. 
There's that word again, grave cause. Um, so it's strongly recommended during that it uh, a homily be given during the day, as well as it gives lay people the right to preach if they're properly qualified at the proper time. So I want you to note that it doesn't say anything about the quality of preaching, right? It doesn't say we have to be dazzled by the homilist, that his jokes have to be funny. It doesn't say anything. It just presupposes, that law presupposes that everything that needs to be in place is in place. It presupposes that ministers of the church are capable and competent and that um, uh, they will be doing their most to prepare good homilies that break open the scripture and apply it to lives. Now, in terms of sacraments, we had both the what are the spiritual goods of the church, the word of God, and the sacraments. Um, sac sacred ministers cannot deny the sacraments to those who seek them at appropriate times, are properly disposed, and are not prohibited by law from receiving them. A simple example, only the baptized can validly receive sacraments. Someone who's not baptized may go for counseling, but cannot go to confession. Um, and pastors of the souls and other members of the Christian faithful are to see that, um, that those who ask for the sacraments have been prepared to receive them by proper evangelization and catechetical instruction, uh, attentive to the norms. Now, this gives great leeway. We often, we had a little saying in canon law that the Pope would dispense from almost anything but the director of religious education from nothing. So sometimes, and I was a DRE, so I can speak to this, um, sometimes we impose things on people who are working preparing for sacraments, whether as adults or as children, that really are only our own good ideas. And there can be an intersection where we have to ask if they're, in every case, reasonable. So you may have a general obligation for confirmation students that they all have to go to this retreat or they cannot be confirmed. That could be a general requirement. In applying that on a case-by-case -case basis, that may be the wrong thing to do. You might say, this child is a child of divorced parents whose the non-custodial parent would not allow them to be here for that retreat. It may be that there was some other good reason, and that's for someone to judge, a DRE or a pastor. So you have to moderate draconian laws with individual circumstances. We apply canon law, we don't build it up. What happened yesterday may not be relevant today, and that can be a source of frustration sometimes. Okay, the Christian faithful have a right to worship God according to the prescripts of their own right, approved by the legitimate pastors of the church. You can be a Byzantine Catholic, a Russian Catholic. They have the right to follow that. 
Um, also, the Christian faithful are at liberty freely to found and direct associations for purposes of charity or piety or for the promotion of Christian vocation in the world. Now, this is sometimes where um, Catholics, lay people, or priests and religious as well, run into conflict. Because, and I'll use as an example an organization, The Voice of the Faithful, which was established by the laity in Boston when the first scandal of abuse by the clergy um, arose there. And uh, the association was held in high regard by the um, church because it said, all right, we're not going to interfere in matters of faith or morals. We're going to concentrate on looking at the issues at hand, the abuse of children by clergy and what was done. Well, over the years, there have been charges. I don't believe they've been substantiated or decided yet, that now that organization is starting to take on other issues, such as uh, the need to have married priests or the need for to ordain women as priests or other issues. And so it's caused a bit of a conflict with the church hierarchy in the areas where it occurs, because it's going from having a very um, legitimate, in the eyes of the church, purpose to a concern about were they advocating through the use of a particular platform other things which are currently not in line with church teachings. Um, the organization Dignity, which ministers to um, gay and lesbi lesbian and transsexual, transgender, all kinds of uh, people, uh, it came into some question about that when there were a woman religious and a Jesuit priest who ministered to there, and it was felt that their participation gave rise to an understanding of Catholic teachings which, were, which was not accurate. So they were asked to return to their congregations and not participate in that ministry anymore. The Jesuit did so. The religious woman decided to leave. So that had to do with the difference between being a gay person and acting in uh, a way that said that sexuality, um, same-sex sexuality was appropriate or gay marriage was appropriate. So there's a difference. I would always tell the eighth graders that the law on sexual activity between um, gay persons is exactly the same as that between unmarried persons. But we seem to be more accepting of, you know, the or more um, tolerant, and it's become more of our society to look at that between unmarried persons, heterosexual persons, than gay persons. The church teaches both are, are wrong. So um, 
public and private associations of the Christian faithful are fine. If you want to be recognized by the church, you have to give them your statutes. You have to say, what are the rules by which you operate? What is your mission? How, how do you elect officers? How, what are the rights of the people in this organization? And uh, no organization can call itself Catholic without the approval of uh, the hierarchy within a diocese. It's a diocesan bishop, an international organization by the Holy See. So um, since they participate in the mission of the church, all Christian faithful have the right to promote or sustain apostolic action, even by their own takings, undertakings, according to their own state and condition. So if you feel that it would be a good idea to make sandwiches for people living in the woods, have at it. You don't need anyone's permission to do that. Um, you can't say you're a Catholic organization doing it without some... Uh, approval, but you have the right to do that. You have the right to talk about your faith, and you have the right to act on it in public. These aren't really exciting rights and obligations, are they? But they're pretty limited. So um, since you're called by baptism, we're all called to lead a life in keeping with the teaching of the gospel. The Christian faithful have the right to a Christian education by which they are to be instructed properly to strive for the maturity of the human person and at the same time to know and live the mystery of salvation. So you have a right to learn what the church teaches. And um, you should exercise that right by staying current on what are the latest uh, encyclicals issued by the Pope. What is the Bishop's Conference talking about? You should understand what's being said. So going back then to your ability to make your opinions known, um, you do it with some basis other than your own opinion. So a pastor, we're talking about catechesis here, a pastor is to take care in a special way that suitable catechesis is provided for the celebration of the sacraments, that um, children are prepared properly for their first reception of, of reconciliation and communion, that children are enriched after that more deeply in catechetical formation, and that catechetical formation is also given to those who are physically or mentally impeded insofar as their condition uh, permits. Now that tells us something about the level of requirements we can place on what we require of people who are going to receive sacraments. Because the church says even those who are impeded by certain limitations, uh, intellectual or physical uh, limitations, that we have to look at that when we're saying what what children have to know before they're admitted to sacraments. So is it reasonable to say, unless a child has totally memorized an act of contrition, they can't make a first confession and then can't make their first communion? I don't think so. I think that the, what is underlying there is the idea of expressing sorrow 
whether they do it as the right allows in their own words, in a prepared prayer that they've memorized, or a prayer that they've read. It's important that they understand, and maybe they're not all capable, or maybe they're too nervous to be able to read it. These are judgments that have to be applied, and these are the kind of conversations that parents can have with DREs and pastors. So those engaged in sacred disciplines have certain rights in terms of how they express their opinions prudently within academic discourse. We're all free from any kind of coercion in choosing a state of life. We have to remember that this is a universal law code, and while arranged marriages aren't so common here, they are in other areas of the world where the church um, exists and where there may be Catholics. So people, you can't say you're the second son, you're going into the seminary whether you like it or not, and you can't say that I don't care what you want to do with your life, you are marrying this person. That people have a right to uh, judge their own, to ex choose that. Um, so no one is permitted to illegitimately harm the good reputation which a person possesses, nor to injure the right of any person to protect his or her privacy. So notice the word illegitimately. So people are entitled to the reputation that they deserve. Now, that doesn't mean we can all go out and gossip. You know, this is what I heard about Mary Jo. This is what I heard about Jim. No, you have to, this is, this is really the, um, uh, uh, warns us about what we say and what we do in terms of the personal integrity of each person. Uh, the Christian faithful have le can legitimately vindicate and defend these rights which they possess in the church in the competent ecclesiastical form according to the norm of law. Doesn't that sound good? There are no ecclesiastical forums. The really, the administrative tribunals are, are a thing that never really emerged, and so the only avenue that you have, if one of your rights, not if you don't like something, but if you can demonstrate that a right has been, uh, uh, has been uh, denied, you can make recourse, which urges you to do so very quickly. And let's say that um, Father Bill didn't like something I said, in a meeting. Can you imagine? No, you can't imagine. So he said, in public, for everyone to hear, that Linda Budney is so incompetent, she should have no rights to work on any tribunal. So right away, she ha he has injured my reputation publicly. So what would I have to do? First, I would go to him, and I'd say, you know, you, you really, because you just used that Irish temper, you, um, you injured my reputation in front of all these people, and my ability to work as, uh, for the tribunal has really been diminished. And he can either say, I'm so sorry, let me rectify that at the next meeting, or he could say, I don't care. 
I said what I said. If, if that were the response, then I could go to the bishop and plead my case, who's not too likely to, uh, you know, take my part vis-a-vis -vis the part of the pastor, but it could be done. He could ask Father Bill to apologize or whatever. But so the vindication of rights is strictly controlled and not really practical. Think of someone unjustly fired by the church. Long after it's done, you know, they have to worry more about getting another job than about their, uh, than about a hierarchical resource, which they might not even know about. So another um, uh, obligation which we have is we are obliged to assist with the needs of the church so that the church has what is necessary for divine worship, for the works of the apostolate and of charity, and for the decent support of ministers. So we are obliged to pay. That is a responsibility of ours. However, offerings giving by, given by the faithful for a certain purpose can be applied only for that same purpose. So you can't uh, give money to an organ campaign and uh, have it used instead, say that we thought, well, that's enough for the organ. What we really need here is a lounge for the canters. You know, I mean, we really need to warm up our voices and have refreshments available. We need a canter lounge. No, we couldn't do that. That's, that's not allowed. So you have to, and how does this play into decision-making of the church? Bishops are well aware of this, and so they often look at their policies in terms of what is this going to do to the revenue of the church, often for good reasons, you know, their ability to help the poor and whatever. And so in exercising their rights, any rights, the Christian faithful as individuals and associations must take into account the common good of the church, the rights of others, and their own duties towards others. And so the good of the church is not its good reputation, it's the good of its ability to carry out its mission, which is to sanctify the world, right? And it's done through the lay people, primarily, that this is done. It's the way we act when we're in our businesses, in our neighborhoods, in the family, that sanctifies the world and brings it closer to God. So in addition to all of those rights, which are common to all of us, there are some rights which um, belong specifically to the laity. Um, so we are bound to work so that the divine message of salvation is made known and accepted by all persons everywhere in the world. The obligation is more, even more compelling in those circumstances in which only through us, through the laity, can people hear the gospel and know Christ. So, you know, we tend to think of rights in the church as being exercised in this building or in the chancery, when really our, the job of the church is the world, and what happens here is to prepare us all for transforming the world, 
it's not just about, oh, I'm going to be a reader, and that's, I've checked off my responsibility to the church. Um, so according to each one's own condition, they are bound, we are bound by a particular duty to imbue and perfect the order of temporal affairs with the spirit of the gospel and thus to give witness to Christ, especially in carrying out these same affairs and in exercising secular functions. And the old joke is that you have to be careful when you drive out of the parking lot that you don't leave Jesus in the church, right? That you don't kill people on your way out. So this means that there's not a gospel here and then another life out there in which you're free to uh, cheat, to uh, lie, to, um, to not uh, provide as necessary for the needs of others, to use the pension plan for a corporate jet, all of those, no. You have to be a paragon of what the church teaching is, whether you're in this building or in your office. Now, according to their own vocation, those who live in the marital state are bound by a special duty to work through marriage and the family to build up the people of God. So all those, according to Canon 1058, all persons who are not prohibited by law can contract marriage. So unless there's a, an impediment to a marriage, you have, people have a right to be married in the Catholic Church. It's not always a good idea. If you sit on a marriage tribunal, you'll understand when you read some of the uh, uh, testimony by people. But so you can't say, why did Father Joe marry them? Well, Father Joe has little latitude in that. If he feels someone shouldn't marry, he can, they can appeal to the bishop who will find another priest or uh, whatever. But people, that's a strong right that people have to marry. Now, since they've given life to their children, parents have a most grave obligation and possess the right to educate them. Therefore, it is for Christian parents particularly to take care of Christian education of their children according to the doctrine handed on by the church. So that's supposed to be by word and example. It's uh, Catholics are to... Um, give a high priority to Catholic education if they're unable to do this, and there are so many reasons why. They're obliged to take care that the suitable education, Catholic education, is provided outside the schools. In many schools, you have release time or religious education is provided in schools, even in public schools. It also says, however, that parents possess a true freedom in choosing schools. Therefore, this Christian faithful must be concerned that civil society recognizes this freedom by parents and even supports it with subsidies. Distributive justice is to be observed. So you have rights. You can choose where it's best for your children to go to school. And conversely, you don't have a right to an education at a given Catholic school. So you can't take a school, uh, canon and say to the headmaster of Gonzaga, 
I have a right, my son has a right to a Catholic education. No, they have a right to an education in the Catholic faith. And it's really the responsibility of parents to see that that's done. Um, it can be done uh, by the parents themselves, or it can be done through catechetical programs. There are many, many ways to see to the Catholic education of children. You're obliged to do it, and you have great internal authority in deciding how that needs to be done. So the lay Christian faithful have the right to have recognized that freedom which all citizens have in the affairs of the earthly city. But they're to take care that their actions are imbued with the spirit of the gospel and to heed the doctrine set forth by the magisterium of the church. In matters of opinion, moreover, they're to avoid setting forth their own opinion as doctrine uh, of the church doctrine. Um, this often creates some issues in our political society in which we have how do we, how does a legislator who is Catholic um, judge that uh, responsibility and that uh, right? So there are, there are issues and it's played out. Uh, in political campaigns, in, in, uh, in many ways. In not only we tend to zero in on pro-choice candidates, but we also have to zero in on candidates who cut, who say they're Catholic, and then cut, without replacing them, programs to see to some of those human rights. So it's not, it's not just a one-issue obligation. It's an obligation that transcends many, many avenues there. We have to look at, you can't say you're Catholic on this one issue and not on the other. So it's a, it's a tricky situation there. So um, we're, if we're sound, found suitable, we're qualified to be admitted to those ecclesiastical offices and functions for which we're able to exercise. Um, lay persons who excel in necessary knowledge, prudence, and integrity are qualified to assist the pastors of the church as experts and advisors. We are obliged and possess the right to acquire knowledge of Christian doctrine appropriate to the capacity and condition of each of us in order to be able to live according to that doctrine, announce it, defend it, and exercise it in the apostolate. So that means work. It means we have to get out there and understand who's teaching what, what those teachings are, um, what they say, how does it impact my life? I was, uh, I've been at many listening sessions about the abuse in the church. And what struck me is the number of people who had no knowledge about what was happening at the conference, USCCB, the Conference of Bishops, what they said about it, what they published, nor in our diocese. So, you know, our diocese for many, many years has had a lay review board and a lay advisory board for many, many years. And a lot of people don't realize that their opinions have to be informed opinions. 
So then we have the ability to uh, perform certain uh, liturgical actions, extraordinary ministers, uh, readers of scripture, uh, cantors, commentator, or other functions according to the norm of law. And uh, when necessary, and other ministers, ordinary ministers are lacking, uh, lay people have the right to preside over liturgical prayer, to confer baptism, and to distribute Holy Communion according to the prescripts of law. The church in Alaska is one church that needs that kind of assistance for baptism and for um, being a, a, the church's witness at a marriage. So um, laypersons who permanently or temporarily devote themselves to special service of the church are obliged, now we're obliged, to get the knowledge and appropriate formation required to fill that function and to carry out this function conscientiously, eagerly, and diligently. Any parish workers here? Yes, we do. Um, however... Uh, without prejudice to uh, other canons, and with the prescripts of civil law having been observed, laypersons have the right to decent remuneration appropriate to their condition so that they are able to provide decently for their own needs and those of their family. They also have a right for their social provision, social security, and health benefits to be duly provided. It's an area the church needs to look into. So when we talk about um, civil law, I mentioned there, the church does something called canonization of civil law as long as the law doesn't conflict with uh, divine law, of civil laws in certain areas, primarily contract area. Because this is a universal law code, it can't possibly spell out here rules for contracts. So unless there's a reason not to, the church recognizes and is bound by civil law um, uh, regulations and laws regarding contracts. Um, so courts will may accept those kinds of uh, suits by lay people, but probably not if the church has an alternate system of vindicating those. Uh, uh, for example, mediation uh, or arbitration. So, you may be looking for the rest of your rights. There are no more. There are certain entitlements that come from uh, being a member of a parish. And it's mostly you're entitled to the religious um, goods of the church. So a parish is a certain community of the Christian faithful, stably constituted in a particular church, not a particular church building, in a diocese, whose pastoral care is entrusted to the pastor under the authority of the bishop. So your pastor is obliged to make sure that the word of God is proclaimed in its entirety, um, that lay members of the faithful are instructed in the truths of the faith. He's to foster works through which the spirit of the gospel is promoted, in, is even in areas relating to social justice. Particular care for the Catholic education of children and youth. Make every effort with the collaboration of Christian faithful 
so that the message of the gospel comes also to those who have ceased the practice of their religion or do not profess the true faith. He's to see that the Most Holy Eucharist is the center of assembly. Um, And it pretty much goes on and on. A pastor is uh, to strive to know the faithful entrusted to his care. That gets harder and harder as parishes are combined, and the number of people in every parish is explodes beyond that for whom this code was intended. Or if you have a sacramental minister who's the pastor of three parishes at great distance to get to know the people in each parish. This is where the um, uh, lay ministers come into being, their responsibilities there to work with the pastor. So how with all of this, um, all of these things that um, we've heard, few rights, a lot of responsibilities, how does this play into what we've heard in terms of the um, abuse crisis in the church? It cannot be an issue of power. It can't be their power. We want to supplant their power with our power because it's not about power. It's about the promotion of the gospel, and it's about our, all of our relationships with each other. It can't be a... Uh, uh, um, about we're going to replace the power and authority of the bishops with lay power. Um, So if you look at the responsibilities of a bishop from law, a diocesan bishop is to show himself concerned for all the Christian faithful entrusted to his care of whatever age, condition, or nationality they are. So that pretty much covers people abused, right? Um, It's clear in hindsight that many of the bishops who committed grave errors of judgment in dealing with abuse cases neglected to consider the actual or potential harm to those victimized by sexual abuse, and they were overly concerned about the reputation of the church and its ministers. In addition, advice about reducing liabilities and lawsuits in the civil arena most likely contributed as well. So how do we hold these bishops accountable? One way, through the legal system of the church, there are canons that say, a person who abuses an ecclesiastical power or function is to be punished according to the gravity of the act or omission not excluding privation of office, okay? And then a person who, through culpable negligence, illegitimately places or omits an act of ecclesiastical power, ministry, or function with harm to another is to be published with a just penalty. Those canons apply in the Cardinal McCarrick case, but not in the case with Cardinal World, Because the law goes on to say... No one is punished unless the external violation of a law or precept committed by the person is gravely imputable by reason of malice or negligence. They had to know they were doing a bad thing, or they had to not regard any kind of thought process before they did it. So the uh, canonical avenue, the church law, is not a promising avenue. Neither is 
really the civil arena because in most cases the statute of limitations has passed. Uh, and as I said, neither are power struggles, which in the church the laity will never win. When we go back to one of those first canons that talk about by divine right there are established out of the Christian faithful some called clerics, that's at the, one of the hearts of the teachings of the church. So the laity will never win a power struggle. But what can we do? Uh, we can pray. That always acts. Even we're not removing pray from pray, pay, and obey. Prayer should always be at the center of our lives and ground our relationships with others in the church. Engage. Take your obligations and responsibilities seriously. Take it upon yourself to learn about the local church and about church teachings. Prepare yourself so that the opinions you express are grounded in an understanding of church teaching and discipline. Then act. Be the face of Christ in the world. Through your actions, make the church something you are, not just something you attend. Finally, make your informed opinions known to your pastor, but in a respectful way. So really, all major changes in church discipline have come from the bottom up. Consider that in the 1917 Code of Canon Law, Christian churches and their other Christian churches and their members were considered heretical. It was the experience of soldiers in the Second World War praying with those of other faiths that helped move our understanding at the Second Vatican Council and regard for the good found in other religious experiences and the current ecumenical movement came from the bottom. The young women who serve on the altar, that came from the bottom up. It was the experience of people and having women serve as lector and Eucharistic minister that made it no sense at all to ban girls and women from serving as altar servers. Again, it came from the bottom up. And consider what happened in our own diocese. When deciding how to address the situation confronting his past actions as Archbishop of uh, Pittsburgh, Cardinal Wuerl first attempted, probably with bad advice, to discredit the Pennsylvania grand jury for neglecting to point out the good he had done. That was not well received by the faithful, not at all. When there was mounting pressure for him to resign, when people didn't accept that, he asked his priests what they thought. Now, this one, why ask the priests? Because they are the ones who are closer to the people. So because pastors, at least most of them, had received countless emails and letters and heard the comments of so many faithful at listening sessions, they were able to convey the concerns of the faithful to the cardinal about the harm that might have been done to the church. And the cardinal asked Pope Francis to accept his resignation for the good of the local church. So in the minds of many of these bishops, they were attending to the reputation of the church and the clergy involved and the privacy of the person offended. And um, they thought that they would make these, as many actions are made, quietly. Um, the legal system of the church 
in contrast with the, our civil legal system, the legal system of the church says, let's reform the person, then let's give some kind of recompense to those offended. And finally, if all else fails, let's punish the offender. Well, we're used in our legal system to let's punish that offender. If there's any chance, let's give some compensation to the victim. And in the end, um, let's worry about rehabilitation, maybe. So they thought, probably, that people would not find out about this, right? Now, anyone who was ever a teenager and had a mother knows that mothers find out about everything, right? There was nothing you could do that, that you thought was super secret that wasn't found out. And that's what happened to the bishops. People dug and dug and dug until all this was made known. So their concern about the overall reputation and uh, the work of the church clouded over their understanding that every time someone was abused by the church, that it, it resulted in a loss of that communion that the baptized are entitled to and obliged to. So everyone who was abused had a different view of the church and maybe went on to leave or not to raise children in the faith. It diminished the church in an untold way. We don't know because most of these things are not reported. But we, acting through due diligence, without worrying about who has the power, we can make a difference. So we need to forget the old paradigm of the passive laity who come in, this work is all Father's work, we're here to pray, to put our envelope in, to pay, and to obey whatever. And uh, instead, we have to move forward. We have to move forward with a new paradigm, always to pray but to engage in the life of the church and in an understanding of what the church teaches and believes. And finally, to act, to take actions, to say what you think, to make your opinions known, because as futile as you may think it is, our own experience in this diocese shows that that's what affects action in the church. So thank you for listening today.